Well, let's go ahead and take our Bibles and turn back to the book of Romans. And we're going to be looking at um, verses uh, 8 through 15 here in chapter 1. We finally got through those opening verses where uh, Paul uh, couldn't help himself but uh, uh, begin to talk about the gospel that he was um, going to be describing, explaining uh, throughout the duration of this letter. And so uh, after he talks about the gospel, uh, listen to what he says. This is Romans chapter 1, verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, making request, if perhaps now at last by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you, while among you, each of us, by the other's faith, both yours and mine." I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you, and I've been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Father, we thank you for uh, this powerful book that we have begun studying through, and I pray, Lord, as we look at these verses that in some ways seem secondary to what we've been looking at in the first seven verses, I pray that, Lord, your spirit would illuminate our minds to see the importance of this passage and how it should impact the way we live our lives today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you've noticed, I titled this sermon, Gung-Ho for the Gospel. Um, we use the word gung-ho in our culture to describe someone who's extremely excited, eager, enthusiastic about, about doing something. But what you may not know is that originally this Mandarin expression was the abbreviated name of the Chinese industrial cooperatives which was an organization back in the 1930s and 40s um, that was established to promote grassroots industrial and economic development in China. And the literal translation of gung-ho is work together or to work in harmony. And during um, World War II, uh, there was a U.S. Marine lieutenant colonel named Evans F. Carlson who used the word gung-ho to describe the enthusiasm, the, the dedication of the Chinese soldiers and, in, and encourage his battalion to have the same gung-ho attitude towards their responsibilities, their duties as soldiers. And so if you know anything about the Marines, that uh, gung-ho eventually became the battle cry for the Marine Raiders. Well, I say all that because I think the combination of the Chinese meaning and the English meaning of the word gung-ho is really a perfect description of Paul's passion for the gospel and also for his purpose in writing this letter to the churches in Rome. We know uh, 
Paul was very excited, eager, enthusiastic about preaching the good news of salvation to everyone, everywhere. I mean, his life passion was to tell people about Jesus. That's what he lived for. And yet he knew that he couldn't bring the gospel to the ends of the earth all by himself. He needed other Christians, other churches to work together with him in this colossal endeavor. And so after spending 10 years taking um, three missionary journeys all over Asia Minor and Greece, he had set his heart on taking the gospel to where it had not yet gone, specifically Spain. And in his mind, Rome, the capital city of the known world at the time, was the obvious launch point to take the gospel into Spain. And so he wrote this letter to the churches in Rome to introduce himself uh, and the gospel that he preached and to enlist their support in advancing the gospel to the uttermost part of the earth. One commentator, I think, uh, said it really well in how he uh, just projected the flow of this book. Listen to what he says. This is what was going through Paul's mind as he was penning these first, um, or, or dictating, I should say, because he wrote to an Amancis, he was dictating these first uh, introductory verses. Here is who I, Paul, am, an apostle to the nations, that's verses 1 through 6, what we've looked at over the last few weeks. Here is who you Roman believers are, Jews and Gentiles who've embraced the gospel concerning Christ, that's what we're going to look at today in verses 8 through 15. And beyond us, both lies the rest of the world for whom Christ died, a world desperately in need of the gospel. And we're going to see that in verses 18 all the way through chapter 3, the end of chapter 3. Again, the commentator goes on here. He says, Rome can be a gateway for me. This is what Paul's saying. Rome can be a gateway for me, a launching pad as I push further west with the gospel if we unite our hearts and abilities in partnership in the gospel. And so I think that's a helpful statement of, of what Paul was going through his mind as he was... Uh, launching into this letter. As we've mentioned, Paul had never visited Rome, uh, nor had he planted any of the churches in Rome, and yet he was gung-ho about preaching the gospel in the imperial city. He was also gung-ho about working together in harmony with the churches there. And, and nowhere is, is Paul's gung-ho attitude clearer here than in verses 8 through 15. Um, He's introduced himself. More importantly, he's introduced the gospel that God had called him to preach. And now he went on to express how he had always wanted to travel to Rome to meet and minister to this beloved body of believers about, about whom he had heard so much about and for whom he had prayed so much for. And so in an effort to, to build a rapport with the Roman Christians, Paul, uh, we see here, commended them for their faithful reputation he expressed his concern for their spiritual well-being, and he explained why he hadn't been able to make it to Rome yet. And uh, again, as I prayed earlier, uh, it would be easy to view Paul's words here in these verses as not that important. Just some casual, inconsequential statements about his travel plans. It sounds like a little bit of an itinerary here that he's sharing, but you can't help but see his heart as an evangelist and his heart for his fellow evangelists. 
Someone said it this way, in our seemingly casual comments and reflections to others, we reveal our heart of hearts. People know what makes you tick, what you're passionate about, what you're gung-ho for by just listening to you talk, what we talk about, what we do in our free time, what we read, what we watch on television, where we venture on the internet, the small comments about ourselves that we make day after day reveal who we are and what we're passionate about. And this commentator said this, Paul was a man in the grip of the gospel. Wherever he went, whoever he was with, whatever his agenda, his priority remained the same, tell the world about Jesus. And so we see that coming out even in this uh, travel itinerary, if you will. And I think the key to understanding this, this passage is to see how the details that Paul explained about the gospel in verses 1 through 7. We, we had several messages titled The Gospel of God, and we looked at uh, the way Paul initially described the gospel, gave a summary of the gospel there in those verses. But we, we need to understand and see how the details that Paul explained in verses 1 through 7 lead to the desires that he expressed to preach the gospel in these next verses, 8 through 15. Uh, this section is full of verbs expressing emotion, expressing passion and, and zeal. And, and, and Paul's aim is that the churches in Rome would begin to share his zeal for the gospel and become enthusiastic evangelists. I have one little book that has already become my favorite um, that I'm reading uh, in preparation for these messages on Romans. And it's, and it's a book, very unique. It's just called Teaching Romans. It's not a, a, a typical commentary, if you will, but it, 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 it's, a, it's a seminary professor uh, who's taught through the book of Romans for years, and he's saying, hey, this is, you know, to pastors, he's writing to preachers, essentially, saying, hey, this is how you should preach through the book of Romans. And now he's actually telling you this is what it means, but this is how you should preach it. So I'm going to, I'm going to give you the answer here. This is like the answer key, right? The professor giving you the answer key because I'm going to tell you what I'm trying to do here, okay? This, is, this was so helpful for me. He said this. This is uh, Christopher Ash, uh, professor in, in, in uh, Great Britain. He said there's a difference between understanding the truth of verses 1 through 7 and having the gospel eagerness of verses 8 through 15 coursing through our veins. He says, this is a challenge to the preacher. So to pray and so to preach this passage that people do not go away just full of notebook, just with full notebooks, agreeing with what we have said. Our longing must be that they go away determined for the gospel to be preached and heard. We want people to go away not only with clarity in their heads, but fire in their hearts. That's good. And so that's my prayer for us today, that God would use these verses to create a, a shared eagerness or gung-ho-ness, if you will, in our church for the gospel to be preached and the gospel to be heard. You say, well, what does that look like practically? Well, I think individually, that, that would mean that each of us is eager to share the gospel with our neighbors, and our, and, our, and, our, and our friends and our family members and our coworkers and our classmates, we just, we just have a passion to tell people about Jesus in our sphere of influence. Corporately, that would mean that, that we're eager to support the preaching of the gospel through our prayers, through our financial gifts for our missionaries and for short-term missions trips and maybe men that go out of this 
uh, body to go to Bible college and seminary to become preachers of the gospel, that you would want to support those people and you want to pray for those guys. And so as we look at these verses, we see how Paul sought to stir up the saints in Rome to be enthusiastic evangelists who were gung-ho for the gospel like he was. And so there was four ways he, he sought to motivate them to be gung-ho for the gospel. First of all, he commended them. He commended them. Look at verse 8. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. And as the center of the inhabited earth at the time, what happened in Rome uh, usually didn't stay in Rome. It was projected uh, all over the world. In fact, in AD 49, the Roman emperor Claudius kicked out all the Christian Jews uh, from Rome. He just expelled them because of their radical and, in the minds of unbelieving Gentiles, uh, uh, controversial commitment to Christ. In fact, two of those Christian Jews who were kicked out of, of, of Rome by Claudius uh, are none other than, than uh, Priscilla and Aquila, uh, two of Paul's most faithful, devoted uh, co-workers. We, we see that in Acts chapter 18, verse 2. In fact, Paul even mentions them in, in Romans chapter 16. He greets them, uh, Prissa and Aquila, probably uh, just a, another spelling for Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ, who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles also greet the church that is in their house. So apparently uh, Priscilla and Aquila had, had returned, um, and when Nero took over as emperor, he allowed the Jews, the Christian Jews, to return. And so apparently Priscilla and Aquila had returned to Rome, and uh, they continued to serve Christ there in that city. In fact, they hosted a church in their home. This was one example um, of the kind of people who uh, made up the church uh, in Rome, who for my life risked their own necks. These were people who risked their own lives for the gospel. And so Paul was grateful to, to have heard the testimony of, this, of, of their strong and wavering faith in the midst of severe persecution. And um, you know, if you know anything about Rome and the way they, they treated Christians, um, sewed them inside lion skins, uh, or excuse me, animal skins, and, and, and put them in the, the lion's den and let the lions just come out and tear them to pieces. That was just one example. Later, Nero would light Christians on fire. He'd, he'd impale them on a stake, and he'd, he'd put them in his garden during his dinner parties, and he'd light them on fire, and it was like a, a human tiki torch. This was the kind of things that, um, that the Christians in Rome had to endure. And so Paul says, I'm, I'm so thankful to God because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. And, and, and that word faith there, he's not referring to the initial faith, their initial faith in Christ when they, when they trusted him for salvation. Paul was referring to their ongoing commitment to Christ or, or their overall relationship to Christ. Notice what he says in verse 12. He says that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith. In other words, we would encourage one another in our walk with the Lord. That's what he's talking about. And so these, these believers in Rome faced all sorts of trials, all sorts of tribulations, 
And yet they demonstrated the genuineness of their salvation by remaining faithful to Christ and persevering no matter what they experienced or how they were treated. One commentator said this, quote, Some churches are famous because of their pastor, their architecture, their stained glass windows, or their size or wealth. The church in Rome was famous for its faith. It was a fellowship of genuinely redeemed saints through whom the Lord Jesus Christ manifested his life and power so that their character was known everywhere. Notice, it was their character that was known everywhere. I think it's a good question to ask ourselves is, what is our church known for? What is our reputation in the community and around the world? People may think and say all sorts of bad things about us, but I trust at the end of the day, we will be known as a group of people who are genuinely committed to Christ and who model to this world what it means to love Jesus and to live like Jesus. Amen? And so he begins by commending them. Secondly, he interceded for them. He interceded for them. Notice verse 9. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son. By the way, notice he's bringing in, he can't get away from the gospel, that it, that it was the gospel of God, and it was now the gospel of his son. Again, reminding us that the focus, the center of the gospel is who? The person and work of Jesus Christ. And so he says, I thank, or for God whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of the Son is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, making requests, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. We know that Paul, in his letters, often mentioned to the churches he planted how much he prayed for them and even what he prayed for them, that uh, most of his letters start with a little prayer list. Hey, this is what I'm praying for you. Um, I think this is interesting that, that Paul was also faithful to pray for the churches he didn't plan and for believers that he had never met before. How many of you have people on your prayer list that you've never met before? that you pray for, that you've never met. You don't even know them. You've heard of them. Or churches that you have really nothing to do with other than your connection to Christ, but you pray for those churches. See, when Paul told somebody, hey, I'm praying for you, he really was. That wasn't just a pious platitude that he would throw around to sound spiritual, I think all of us are probably guilty at times of telling people, hey, I'm going to pray for you, and then we never do. But that wasn't true of the Apostle Paul. In fact, God himself could testify how faithfully Paul prayed for other believers. He says, let's bring God in here. I call God as my witness, and he can tell you how faithful I've been to pray for you, how consistently, how passionately I've prayed for you. I don't know if I'd want to be calling God in as my witness sometimes of how faithfully I've prayed for people, right? Because God knows that I haven't at times. And I think this is a good reminder that, that, that prayer is one of those secret spiritual disciplines 
along with reading our Bibles, that, that, that only God knows how faithful we are to do, and, and that's why it often gets left undone. We don't pray because, well, nobody's going to know whether or not we, we did it, and so, you know what, I don't have time today, or I don't feel like it, and so I'm just not going to do it, and nobody will ever know, except for God, right? He knows. And so I think our private prayer life is one of the best evidences of the genuineness of our commitment to Christ. You think about that. I mean, if you ever wonder, am I, am I a hypocrite? Am I, do I kind of just want people to think I'm a Christian or do I think I'm a Christian? And well, look at your private prayer life. I'm not talking about you praying in public, in your small group, you know, in your Bible study in your woman's group or your men's group. I'm talking about all by yourself in your closet. That's the real test of the genuineness of your salvation, that you have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And you relate to him on a regular basis through prayer. Notice what he says here. He says, I'm always in prayer, making requests, and one of those requests is if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. Paul had wanted to come to Rome. He wanted to visit Rome and minister to the churches there, but up until that point, God had prevented it from happening. Notice verse 13. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you. It's not that I haven't wanted to come. I have wanted to come. In fact, I've made plans to come. And have been prevented so far. And you're like, by what? By who? Well, he never answers that, that question. So we're left with the analogy of Scripture. What, what, what does the rest of Scripture say? What, what, what else did Paul say in other, uh, other parts of his, his writings? Well, um, in 1 Thessalonians 2.18, he told the church in Thessalonica that that um, he wanted to come visit them, but he was being hindered by Satan. Okay? That's one option. I think it's more likely that, that due to the fact that his missionary work in Asia Minor and, and Greece had, had kept him busy up until that point. That, that's probably why he hasn't come. That, he was just so busy. In fact, look at Romans 15. Romans 15 I think this is the answer to, to why he was prevented Verse 22, notice he says, this is Romans 15, 22. For this reason, I have, been often, I have often been prevented from coming to you. And he, was just, he just got done talking about how busy he was in ministry all over Asia Minor and Macedonia and Achaia. And verse 23, but now with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while, but now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution to the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them in, in material things. Therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on, on by way of you to Spain. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Now listen, he prays for them. Now he's asking 
them to pray for him. Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Jerusalem, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints, so that I may come to you in joy, here it is, by the will of God, and find refreshing rest in your company. Paul knew that ultimately, the reason why he hadn't made it to Rome yet is because it wasn't God's will yet. But he said, hey, pray. Pray that it would be God's will. Because I really want to come and see you guys. And I really ultimately want to get, to the, get the gospel to Spain. I think we have here a, a wonderful example of that delicate, dynamic balance between our prayers and God's will. Sometimes we get ourselves mixed up in our heads. Well, wait a minute. If God's already sovereign and he's ordained everything that's going to happen, and why pray? His will is going to happen no matter what. Well, he commands us to pray. We're instructed to pray. We're encouraged to pray. And we're, we're even encouraged to hope that God will do things or provide things But at the same time, we need to humbly acknowledge that what we want may not be what he wants, at least right now. And so rather than imposing our will on God, we need to submit our will to his. That's how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus modeled that in his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, not my will, but what? Your will be done. James 4 is very practical, verses 13 through 15. Hey, don't don't run around telling everybody what what you're going to do tomorrow. I'm going to go here, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this. No, you don't know know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor. You're a bubble. Instead, you should say, if what? The Lord wills, we'll do this or that. Again, this is a good reminder of of the the way, the relationship between our prayers and and, and God's will. So he commended them, he interceded for them, and then thirdly, he expressed his desire to minister to them. He expressed his desire to minister to them. Look at verse 11. Back in Romans chapter 1. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you so that you may be established. Now we know that only the Holy Spirit has the ability to give spiritual gifts to believers to minister to the rest of the body of Christ. So Paul was not saying, hey, I'm going to, give you, I'm going to grant you some spiritual gift necessarily. He was simply saying that he wanted to, to minister to them to be a blessing to them through his gifts, maybe, uh, of teaching and exhortation. Why? That you may be established. He wanted to build them up and strengthen them in their faith. But notice what he says here. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. What was Paul doing there? 
he was putting himself on the same level as the believers in Rome. Sure, he was the Apostle Paul that God had uniquely gifted and called to, to serve as a leader in bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. And yet, Paul humbly admitted that his ministry wasn't a one-way street, that, 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 that he had not arrived yet spiritually, that he could learn from them as much as they could learn from him. It wasn't just a, hey, I'm going to minister to you and, 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 and you enjoy that. No, that he could receive ministry from them. Even from those who were less spiritually mature than him. That God could use them to encourage him and, and cause him to grow in his walk with the Lord. This is a, a principle that I've been reading about in recent months and, and it's been very encouraging and convicting all at the same time. Paul Tripp is someone I, I know that many of you uh, know and you've read uh, a number of his books. He's got a book that you probably would never read because it's written more to, to pastors, but it's, it's simply titled Dangerous Calling. And, it, and it's, a, it's really one of the best books I've ever read about the ministry and, and the dangers. The, you know, every, every job has, has its work hazards, right? And so that's really what he exposes in this book, Dangerous Calling. And, and one of the work hazards of being a pastor or being an elder or being a, a leader in ministry is that, that, that it does become a one-way street, that, 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 that people assume that, that you've got it all together and, and you're there to serve them, and so you minister to them, and, and they sit there and receive that ministry, but then they never feel... Uh, any obligation or any sense of responsibility to minister to you. Well, because you're the pastor. And you've got it all dialed in, and, 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 and maybe someday, you know, you can be like me kind of thing, right? And no, you need to understand that you are part of the body of Christ. And, uh, and, and you need the ministry of the body of Christ just like everyone else, as much if not more than the other members of the body of Christ. And, and so, in other words, he, he, his whole point is don't put yourself on a pedestal above your congregation and don't let them put you on a pedestal above them, where there's a disconnect, where it's just a one-way street, where you're just always ministering to them and, and you're never letting them minister to you. We just read a book together as a, as a pastoral staff, a book called You Lift Me Up uh, by Albert Martin, one of my favorite pastors and authors uh, this is a, just a tremendous uh, book, and, and uh, he has a chapter here, Beware of Losing Your Own Nurture by Isolation from the Congregation. And, and, and let me just read for you uh, some of what he said here. He says, Though pastors and teachers are given to the church for a specific and prominent function within the body, they are not exempt from an organic connection to the body. Pastors and teachers, like all other members of the body, are also dependent upon the nourishment which comes through the other parts of the body. When we are out of the pulpit and not engaged in individual pastoral ministry, we are primarily members of the body who need what the body can contribute to us. You ready for this? Merely interacting with our people, we're nobody special. We're just a fellow believer who puts their pants on the same way you do, right? 
and who has the same struggles and challenges and frustrations. Martin goes on to challenge pastors with having this humble mindset. He says, do we ask our brethren questions that make it evident that we're ready to be taught by them? For example, think of that faithful man with the gnarly mechanic's hands, with grease under his fingernails, and with a, with a rather limited formal education. He has learned how to maintain communion with God in the midst of a cursing, swearing, and noise-filled environment. Day by day, he must walk by indecent centerfolds hung up on the walls of the shop where he works. Does he not have something to teach us about how to maintain a godly mindset in an ungodly context? He may know much more about this than we do. Do we ever ask him to teach us? Take that dear woman harassed with mommy this and mommy that all day long. Anybody relate to that in here? With four children all under five years of age, yet there is serenity, a beautiful dignity, almost a halo of divine peace and glory upon their countenance. You see it when you preach. You would think she was an angelic nun who had just stepped out of the rigidly structured life in a convent. She sits under the preaching of the word, utterly undistracted. Her face is turned upward to you as you minister the word of God. She is evidently wrapped up in God and his truth. Do you ever go to her and say, my dear sister, I have only a little idea what your world is like, but it is evident that when you come into the house of God and you're among the people of God, somehow you're able to put all things behind you. Would you please tell me your secret? My brother, do you really believe that those supposedly insignificant members have something to contribute to you? Put yourself in the place where they can minister to you, or you may well be despising a vital means of grace mediated through Christ's body, the church. What a great perspective. Let me just read one one more section. This is just so good. He says this, Oh, my brothers, dismantle every bit of that wretched wall of clericalism that cuts you off from real edifying interaction with your people. Pray that the Spirit of God will come like a consuming fire and burn up that clerical cocoon within which you hide yourself from your people. It is when we freely acknowledge among our people that we are men like, of like passions with them that they will feel free to relate to us in a way that makes their interaction a means of grace to us. I hope you see signs of that desire in my heart to be vulnerable, to be transparent as your pastor, to never put myself on a pedestal above you or to let you put me on a pedestal, what to, to just say, hey, we're all the same and we're all in this together and let's be an encouragement one to another, amen? And that's what Paul was saying here, that he wanted to be encouraged um, by the believers in Rome. Notice verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I plan to come to you even though I prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. Again, Paul was hoping to have a fruitful harvest uh, from his ministry in Rome, uh, specifically unbelievers uh, being converted to Christ. That's typically when Paul talked about fruit, talking about people getting saved. Um, Little did he know that he would end up making it to Rome 
not as a, a preacher, but as a prisoner. And yet his hope of seeing souls saved, souls, souls saved there in, in, in Rome was fulfilled. If you remember from our uh, most recent study in the book of Philippians, Paul ended the letter, Philippians chapter 4, verse 22, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. So being under house arrest, Paul was uh, exposed to all the, the, the guards uh, and even maybe some of the household uh, members of Caesar and was able to share the gospel with them and they got saved. And uh, God had different plans, but, but Paul's ultimate plan was accomplished that people would hear the gospel and be saved. And then lastly here in our text, he commended them, he interceded for them. Um, he expressed his desire to minister to them. Thirdly, or excuse me, fourthly, he stressed his obligation to them. He stressed his obligation to them. And I love verses 14 and 15. He says, I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. We know that Paul had been called appointed by God to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And so as Christ's slave, he introduced himself in verse 1, a bondservant of Christ. As Christ's slave, he viewed his ministry as a sacred duty that he had been entrusted with by Christ himself, and he was bound to complete that task that had been put before him. Listen to what he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16. Paul said, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I'm under compulsion. In other words, don't pat me on the back because I'm a preacher. I'm, I'm under compulsion. I'm just doing what I, what I should do, what I have to do, what I must do. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward but if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. Either way, whether I do it voluntarily, I get rewarded. But, you know, even I, if even I do it against my will, like I really don't want to, but I do it anyway, that's okay. That's obedience to the stewardship that was entrusted to me. Listen, beloved, you can't get around our responsibility to, to preach the gospel, to share the gospel. We're all under this same obligation, and we should feel compelled to share the gospel. We've been uh, entrusted with this sacred stewardship of the gospel. And so he says, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians. The Greeks considered themselves better than everyone else. They were cultured. They were refined. And they viewed all those who had never adopted the Greek culture or been trained in the Greek culture and could speak the Greek language, they considered them as barbarians. You get a hint of this if you watch my big fat Greek wedding and how that dad, every, you know, every, everyone else, he looked down, you know, these people, hey, tell me any word and I'll tell you the origin was Greek and, uh, you know, it's, everything's, the Greeks are the best, right? That was the mindset back then. And so he says, I'm, I'm under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, to the, those who are educated and those who are uneducated, those who are sophisticated and those who are simple. In other words, I'm under obligation to everyone. Everyone I know. Everyone I meet. 
I'm under obligation to tell them about Jesus, to make sure they know how they can have forgiveness for their sins and, and have eternal life in heaven. Didn't matter to Paul who you were or where you were from. He felt a burden. He felt an obligation to tell you about Jesus. Whether you're a runaway slave, like Onesimus, or a king, like Agrippa, if you were in the presence of Paul, you were going to hear the gospel, whether you wanted to or not. How are we under, to understand this, this obligation that wasn't just for Paul, but should be for us? Well, consider this. If you see someone's house on fire, you see someone drowning, do you have an obligation? Absolutely. To do everything you can to warn them, to, to rescue them. How much more if we see someone in need spiritually, their house is on fire, uh, they're headed for hell, or they're drowning in, in life's trials and, and tribulations without Christ, how much more obligated are we to try to rescue them with the gospel? William MacDonald is a favorite commentator of mine. He said this, anyone who has Christ has the answer to the world's deepest need. Do you have Christ? You have the answer to the world's deepest need. You have a cure, he says, to the disease of sin, the way to escape the eternal horrors of hell and the guarantee of everlasting happiness with God. This puts you under solemn obligation to share the good news with people of all cultures. Look real quick with me back in the Old Testament, 2 Kings chapter 7. 2 Kings chapter 7. Don't be intimidated. You can find it, okay? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. What? Joshua, Judges, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2, or excuse me, Ruth. Don't miss out Ruth there. 1 and 2 Samuel, and then 1 and 2 Kings. But look at 2 Kings 7. 2 Kings chapter 7. Here, uh, the king of Aram has laid siege to Samaria. They wanted to destroy Samaria, and so they, they locked it down, and nobody could go in and nobody could go out. And, uh, and, and the armies, the, the, the Arameans surrounded uh, the, 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 uh, the city of Samaria, and there was a great famine. Um, there were, there wasn't, they couldn't get any food. And, and the people resorted to cannibalism. They started eating one another. I mean, talk about a, a, a horrific scenario. And so here they were, locked into this city, left with the decision whether or not to eat their own family members. Look at verse 3 of chapter 7. Now there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate, and they said to one another, Why do we sit here until we die? If we say we will enter the city, then the famine is in the city and we will die there, and if we sit here, we die also. In other words, they had been outside the city. They had been kicked out of the city. They were lepers. They weren't allowed in the city, so they were outside the city. And they're sitting out there going, Well, everybody's 
you know, starving inside, eating one another inside. There's no, we shouldn't go in there. Notice he says, let us go over to the camp of the Arameans. If they spare us, we will live. And if they kill us, we will but die. We're going to die anyway. Might as well take our chances with the Arameans. At least they got food. And so they arose, verse 5, at twilight to go to the camp of the Arameans. When they came to the outskirts of the camp of the Arameans, behold, there was no one there. That was odd. They weren't expecting that. For the Lord had caused the army of the Arameans to hear a sound of chariots and a sound of horses, even the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel is hired against us, the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. Therefore they rose and fled in the twilight and left their tents and their horses and their donkeys, even the camp just as it was, and fled for their lives. When these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they entered one tent and ate and drank and carried from their silver and gold and clothes and went and hid them. And they returned and entered another tent and carried from there also and went and hid them. And these guys were like, they hit the jackpot. They won the lottery. I mean, they got all this free food, all this free stuff, and they're just gobbling it up and they're, they're taking the stuff and running away and burying it and hiding it. But then it dawned on one of them Verse 9, love this. Then they said to one another, we are not doing right. This isn't right. Why? This is a day of what? Good news, but we're keeping silent. If we wait until morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore come, let us go and tell the king's household. And I love that phrase. This is a day of good news, but we are keeping silent. It's a great example, great illustration for us. We could all say, man, we hit the jackpot. We won the lottery in Christ. This is a day of good news, a day to celebrate. And we've got people killing one another and cannibalizing one another in and, 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 and our world today. And, and we've got the message, this is not right. We, should be, we can't stay silent. We've got to tell them. What we found, hey guys, look what we found. We found Christ. Back in Romans 1, verse 15, so for my part, Paul says, for my part, I, don't, I, can't, I can't speak for you, but for me, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul couldn't wait to get to Rome so he could share the gospel. He wanted to travel there, again, not as a sightseer, but as a soul winner. He wasn't thinking like a tourist. He was thinking like an evangelist. And I think it's interesting, and again, Christopher Ashe points this out so insightfully. He says this, notice that Paul is eager to preach to the Christians in Rome. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He's writing to believers. He said we might expect him to be eager to preach to the unbelievers in Rome, and no doubt he is if, he, if his visits to other cities are anything to go by. He obviously would always preach the gospel to unbelievers, but he doesn't ask them to organize evangelistic meetings in the forum and invite their friends. His first aim is to preach the gospel to the Christians because he knows this will build up a church in harmony and missionary zeal, and as the gospel changes them, so they will reach out humbly and eagerly to others. I hope and pray that that's what will happen 
as we study the gospel together in the book of Romans, that, that, that it, will, it will build us up in harmony and missionary zeal, and it will change us so that we'll reach out more humbly and eagerly to others with the gospel. How about you? For your part, are you eager to share the gospel with us, or are you hesitant? Are you reluctant? Or worse, are you indifferent? Are you enthusiastic about evangelism? Or are you apathetic about whether or not people hear the good news of salvation? Beloved, there is nothing more incongruous, inconsistent than an evangelical church like ours that is not evangelistic. In other words, how can a church who understands and embraces the biblical gospel not care about sharing it with others? Completely inconsistent. Completely hypocritical. By the grace of God, we're an evangelical church. We, we believe, we, we, we understand, we, 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 we're, we're convinced of the biblical gospel. But that's nothing to pat ourselves on the back for. The question is, what are we doing about it? God didn't give us the gospel just so we could say, hey, guess what? We got the gospel right. Aren't we, aren't we good? Those other churches, they, they don't get the gospel right. Okay, so if we get the gospel right by the grace of God, what are we going to do with it? Toss it around in here and go, oh, look at that. Hey. Or take it out there to those who need it, who need to hear it. Someone said it this way. It is to the shame of the church that there are not millions of Apostle Pauls roaming the earth looking for one more person to tell about the gospel of the grace of God. Paul's attitude was this. If I'm the only one who senses this indebtedness, that changes nothing. I'm still indebted. And as long as there is one person left on earth to whom the invitation to eternal life has not been issued, then I am not a free man. I will remain a bondservant of Christ until the last sheep has been brought into the fold. Amen? I mean, that should be all of our attitude as well. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for Paul and just how gung-ho he was for the gospel. And Lord, we confess at times we're not so gung-ho. Um, we can be reluctant. We can be apathetic. We can be indifferent. Whether or not people hear the gospel and get saved. And so I pray we'd have this under-obligation, this gospel eagerness, readiness to share the gospel with, 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 with anyone, anywhere, and that you would stir up this body of believers, this evangelical church who knows the gospel, who teaches the gospel, Lord, that we would live the gospel and share the gospel with others for your glory, we pray. Make us gung-ho for the gospel in Jesus' name. Amen.